Our Father, one of the things that uh, the Lord Jesus told us that we should pray for in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer was that we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we live in a uh, nation and we live in a culture that has been given so much. We, uh, we have more than daily bread, and we've had it for a long time. Yet at the same time, we're living in times where a lot of men, a lot of families are being squeezed financially. Um, we read every day and we hear on the news about the condition of the economy and the economic forecast. And there's much concern. We have guys in here whose situations have radically changed in the last few years. Um, jobs have been lost. Uh, investments are gone. Uh, many men, and I'm thinking in particular of guys in here tonight, find themselves in a completely different position than they were in three or four years ago. We look at the whole world, we look at what's going on in Europe, and we shake our heads, and, and we shake our heads at decisions that are being made. We shake our heads at policies that seem to have absolutely no sense. I'm reminded in Job 12, you talk about the fact that uh, you have robbed of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's peoples, and you caused them to wander in a pathless waste. That's an amazing statement. The, the leaders of nations, you actually take away their intelligence. You take away their sense. Because um, <laughs> when we continually ignore you and when we continually deny that you're there, and we, when we act like we are central instead of you being central, there is a price to be paid. Uh, Romans 1 tells us that when we deny your existence and when we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, there are levels, and you take us through the levels, individuals and nations, and you will give us over. And you will give us over to reprobate minds. And someone with a reprobate mind is someone who is not, they don't reason. They lose their reason. And we look around and we see in so many areas of life, economically, politically, all these, we just see a lack of reason. We see a lack of knowledge, but we shouldn't be surprised because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when we lose our knowledge, we lose our wisdom. In any sphere of life, it should not surprise us that there are ramifications economically, politically, in family. So, all that being said, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have given us your truth. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Your, your spirit leads us into all truth, and your spirit gives us wisdom. We don't have to live as the rest of the world lives. They have lost in intelligence. You give us wisdom. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. So, no matter where we are tonight, no matter what our, our financial statement says, no matter what our retirement fund balance is, no matter what the balance in the checking account is, we do not have to be fearful because you are our Father and you have promised to meet all of our needs according to your riches and glory. And even when the balances are low, 
you are still there and you still watch over your word to perform it and you cannot lie. That calms our hearts. Give us this day our daily bread. And we can pray that and we can hold it up to you and know that you will honor it. And we know that you will take care of us all the days of our lives. We may not have the surplus that we used to have. But we don't need surpluses. We need you. You promise to give us our daily bread. And you promise to do it each day as we get up. Your mercies are new every morning. You've gotten us through this day. And some of us are amazed we got through it. Well, we're going to study and then we're going to go home, go to sleep, and we'll get up in the morning. And the mercies will be new and fresh and they'll start all over again. So in all of this turmoil, we are blessed men to know you who has given us life and who sustains our life until you call us home. That puts peace in the deepest recesses of our souls because it's true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're working through Hebrews 11, so if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there, if you would. You know, it's said of the Marines that they're always looking for a few good men. The story is told of a uh, high school principal uh, back in the 50s, and each year it was his, uh, it was his program and it was his, uh, it was his tradition to have an assembly. Uh, for all the young men in his high school. And he would separate the men and the young ladies, but this was an assembly just for the young men. And he would invite three recruiters, one from the Army, one from the Navy, one from the Marine Corps. And uh, there was a, it was a 45-minute assembly. He gave them each 15 minutes. So the first guy up was the Army recruiter, and he was very excited about the Army. So he went, for, uh, he went for about 30 minutes. So the other two guys are a little uncomfortable. Navy guy is up next. Uh, he's aware of the time, but uh, there's 15 minutes left on the clock. Well, he gets excited and he goes about 12 minutes. And finally, the Marine Corps guy gets up. And there's no time. He walks up. He's got about three minutes. He walks up. And the first minute, he just stands there and looks out over these young high school guys. And he just scans the crowd. Doesn't say a word for a minute. And everybody's kind of uncomfortable, and, and, and it's, a little, it's a little unusual. He's not saying anything. And everybody knows he doesn't have much time. And he's just looking, and he's looking, and he's looking. And he said, you know, I represent the United States Marine Corps. And as I'm looking around at this group of young men, as far as I can see, there might be two or three of you guys that could make it. I want to see you guys at my table when this is over. <laughs> that was brilliant. Because about 80% of them were at his table. The Marines are looking for a few good men. Here's what the Lord is always looking for. The Lord is always looking for sinful men. He's looking for um, men that haven't done so well. He's looking at men that are smart enough to know they've ruined their lives. He's looking for men who understand that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then what he does is he invades their lives with the good news of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, we delivered to you that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel, that he was buried, 
that on the third day he rose from the dead. Then he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to the apostles. Then he appeared to over 500 at one time. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is based on facts. On facts. It's not based on mysticism. It's, it's not based on looking deep inside yourself. You don't want to look in deep inside yourself. There's nothing there. Is there? Look in deep. That's the answer the world has to everything. You want to look deep inside yourself. Look deep inside yourself. There's nothing inside of you. You're screwed up. Right? I'm screwed up. We're all screwed up. The heart is desperately sick and wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? Can the Ethiopian, Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. We are sinners. doesn't mean we can't do good things and, you know, donate to the Red Cross and all that. But in terms of righteousness, we have no righteousness. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy, what? Rags. You ever change a dirty diaper? <laughs> when, you, when I think filthy rags, I think dirty diaper. I think number two diaper. No man worth his salt wants to get near a number two diaper. When I was young, had my first baby, I'd do number one diapers. I didn't do number two diapers. Didn't want to rob Mary of the joy of being a servant. And she picked up on it and actually called me on it one night. Uh, a number two diaper, nobody, you don't want it, you don't want it in the house, you want to get rid of it. That's the best day of your life, you're a number two diaper. In terms of righteousness, because God requires 100% perfection. Well, we're never going to cut it, so what did Jesus do? He who knew no sin became sin, came to this earth, took on flesh, born of a virgin, went to the cross, died in our place. And what he does is he takes men who are not good men. He takes men who are filthy and foul sinners. We're sinners by birth. By birth, we're sinners. In sin, my mother conceived me, David said. And, then, and we have a sin nature. I, I, from time to time, I had a guy recently come up to me, and he, he said, well, I, I believe in free will. I said, good. I said, free from what? And he wasn't quite sure. Do we have wills? Yeah. Am I responsible for my choices? You bet I'm responsible for my choices. But when we say free will, stop and think about that statement. You know, Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. Well, what's that about? What do you mean, a, the bondage of the will? The bondage of your will, the bondage of my will. We are bond slaves to sin. You read Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 says. So when we talk, do, I, do you have a will? Do I have a will? Yeah. Am I responsible for my choices? Yeah, and so are you. But here's the thing. When you say that you have a will, be careful of saying that your will is free because your will is not free. Your will is influenced by your sin nature, and that's why we always choose against God. And that's why the Scripture says in Psalm 14, is it 14? There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks God. God has looked over all the sons of men, and there is no one who seeks Him. That's interesting. You say, well, I, I, I'm talking to some guys right now, and it seems to me that they're seeking the Lord. I'm sure they are. You know why they are? Because He's seeking them. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit. This is what I was saying earlier. God takes guys that are sinners and that are messed up. This is the gospel. He takes us, men, women, boys and girls, he takes us, he comes after us. We love him because what? He first loved us. He's the seeker, we're not. If, you, if you're seeking him, it's because his spirit is pulling you to, to him. Jesus said, no man can come unless the Father draw, uh, draws him. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me will come. John 6. 
So what the Lord does, he takes busted up men who are sinners, and he comes after us. And then he begins a process of forgiving us of our sin. We're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new mind. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. He gives us, we're born again. And now we're going to start the, now we're going to start the growth process. You see? All these guys in Hebrews 11, they walk the path, and we're walking the path now. It begins with spiritual, it begins with spiritual birth, and then you're on the road to spiritual maturity. They all started with shame and with sin. And that's why I've called this study on Hebrews 11, because it's God's Hall of Fame. How'd they get in the Hall of Fame? Because the Lord went after them and began to do a work in their life. They came to know the Lord. They're Old Testament guys, so they're looking ahead to the Messiah who's going to come. He did a work in their heart. They trusted by faith in the one who was going to come and forgive their sins. And then they began the process of spiritual growth. That's where we are. We're in process. We're in the process of growing. That's where you are, that's where I am. And that involves walking by faith. So every guy in this room, sorry to repeat myself, but it's Hebrews 11. Every guy in this room, in some way, in some way shape, or form, there's an area of your life, there's a situation of your life, there's at least one circumstances and probably more that you wish these circumstances weren't in your life, but they are. And you can't control them, and you cannot manage them, and you can't get your arms around them, and unless God comes through with his promises to make a way for you and provide for you and never leave you or forsake you, and my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory, unless he comes through with his promises, you're toast. And every time he comes through for us, and we pray, and we trust in him, and we're not sure how we're going to make it, and we're in the valley of deep darkness, and we're not sure how we're going to navigate, as Psalm 23, 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which literally is even though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, the deepest and darkest valley of all is death, but there are other deep and dark valleys that are just as deep and just as dark, death of a spouse, loss of health, loss of a career, some kind of major setback, uh, a, a family that's broken and with fissures, and how do you ever unscramble an egg? And you, you, we just grieve over these things. We're not sure how we're going to make it, even though I walk, watch this, through the valley of deepest darkness. It doesn't say even though I go around it, even though I avoid it, even though I helicopter over it, tunnel it. No, even though, even though I walk through. How many of you guys have been in a deep and dark valley? Uh, by the way, the, the way you know you're in a deep and dark valley, here's how you know. You think you'll never get through it. You ever been there? Okay. Now, how many of you guys have ever been in a deep and dark valley you thought you'd never got, get through, and you got through it? I'd like to see your hands. Oh, gosh, look at that. Let's take a Gallup poll. <laughs> How many of you guys have been through more than one deep and dark valley and God got you through? Yeah. Well, I got some good news for you. You're going to go through another one. See, you know, you know, that's not what I came here to hear. Well, it may not be, but, I mean, do you think deep and dark valleys are done for you? I mean, you, what do you think this is, Disneyland? Christian life is a hard life. So we know it. Are we always in trouble and difficulty? No, God's gracious, and there are seasons of, of uh, refreshment, and there are seasons when things are relatively calm, and then here comes another storm. But you know what? Here's what happens. The longer you walk with him... Um, Here's what happens. The longer you walk with Christ, one guy put it this way. The older I get, uh, my ups are not so up and my downs are not so down. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? I'm a little more level as I go through life. Does hard stuff come? Yeah, but you see, I got a track record with him. And what used to scare me to death and utterly panic me 
Well, I mean, I don't like it and I don't enjoy it, but I know he's in it. And I know it's for a season. And if I'm teachable, I know he'll make a way. Why? Because I got a track record with him, his faithfulness. Every guy in this room has a story. Every guy in this room who knows Christ has a story of how you've been brought to the Lord. And, and the work that he's done in your life, how he came after you, how he pursued you, how he providentially sought you out. Um, when I was uh, a kid in our church, a lot of times on Sunday night, uh, we'd, have, we'd, have a, we'd have testimony time. And I don't, you know, it was what we used to do. And every once in a while, somebody would get up and they'd give their testimony. Or you've been to a, a conference or a retreat and they'll ask somebody, they'll give them 10, 15 minutes to give their testimony. And when they walk up there, I, I do a lot of men's retreats, a lot of men's conferences, and I'll go in and, um, you know, they, they said, we're going to have, you know, Joe Schmo give his testimony. Great. And I'm sitting there, you know, and almost every time, Almost every time the guy gets up and you, you have no clue who this guy is, and in about 10 minutes you're mesmerized with what God did to bring that guy to Christ. Just remarkable. That's true in all of our lives. And, and I would be so bold to say this. We have guys that are probably here, this many guys. I would imagine we have some guys here, and you say, well, I, I, really, haven't, I really don't know the Lord like you're talking about. Well, what are you doing here? What do you mean, what am I doing here? Well, why are you here? And you may even think, well, I'm not even quite sure why I'm here. Can I tell you what's going on? He's pulling you in, man. He's drawing you. And, 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 that, and you, that didn't, just, just go with that. Just watch him work. I mean, the best days of your life are ahead of you, and they're immediately ahead of you. So just keep showing up and just watch him work. It's the greatest experience of your life. And he will radically change your life. But what's happening is he's pulling you in. And uh, here's the other deal. You're coming. You're coming. And you want to come. So you'll want to come. Because why would you not come? The more you get to know him. It's like one of the disciples said to him, where else will we go, Lord? We've, it's you. Every, everything else pales in comparison. Does it not? Yeah, it does. All these guys in the Old Testament, they learned this. And we, and we know these guys who were mentioned in Hebrews 11 and God's Hall of Fame, uh, some of them we have remarkably long biographical sections in the Old Testament, so we know their stories in depth and detail. Others of these guys that we'll get into in a few weeks or a few months, we've got just smidgens, just a paragraph or two on these guys in the Old Testament. But in all of their lives, God was at work. He came after them. He sought them, brought them to him in an amazing way, in a providential way. And then he begins to work and begins to grow and puts them in situations. Often what happens is after we come to the Lord, it's not unusual after you come to the Lord, within a very short period of time, you find yourself in an immediate crisis. We'll see Abraham next week. Abraham went out from his land, not knowing where he was going. And the first thing that happens as he follows the Lord is he hits a famine. That's pretty common in the Christian life. Why would that be? Because what you're going to find out after you come into the Lord, one of the first things that you learn, and you learn it throughout your life, is that he is faithful, and he makes a way where there is no way, and you come to a dead end, and you make your plans, and your plans fall apart, and then what does he do? He comes in and rescues you and saves you. That's what he does. That's just what he does. And again, this will happen time and time and time again. And so you find yourself having to walk and live by faith. We don't walk by sight. If we walk by sight, we'd have it all figured out and understand, oh, God's going to do this, and then he'll do that, and then that's going to come through, and then that. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I've quoted Paul Tripp before. 
his little article where he said, so much of my prayer is, my will be done, my kingdom come. Isn't that how we pray most of the time? I've been doing this study for so long, and some of you guys, you, th- th- thanks for coming and putting up with me. And, and I repeat myself. But you know what? You're my age. You repeat yourself, too. And the great thing is, we get older, we don't realize we repeat ourselves. We just keep living in bliss. Uh, everyone else mocks us and makes fun of us, but we're having a great time. It's a wonderful life, is it not, as we get older, get miles on the tires? You're out of alignment, you don't even know it. <laughs> but we'll say things from time to time, and, and, and then we find ourselves referring back to them. And, and one of the things that I find my, I, I, I mean, you know what I've discovered? God's good to dumb guys. The guys I know that are blessed are the guys that know they're dumb. The guys I know that are blessed are amazed that they're blessed. But see, what's happened is when he comes into your life and the Spirit of God opens your eyes, you realize just how dumb and stupid you really are. That's one of the greatest things that ever happened to you. And then you realize how much you, know him, you need him. And, and you realize, you see, he's the, she- he's the shepherd. I'm not the shepherd. He's going to navigate me. He's going to walk me through this stuff. I, I, I really debated about doing this tonight as I open this, but it ties in. We're going to look at Noah tonight. And I came across the testimony of a guy named Richard Gams. And I, I want to give you just maybe five or six minutes on this guy because it's one of the wildest testimonies I've ever heard in my life. And it sinks with, <laughs> it sinks with the two key principles we're going to look at out of Noah's life, who was a guy listed in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 11 who walked by faith. Richard Gans was a guy, and I, I, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll just read or digest this thing. Some of you young guys don't know what I'm talking about. They used to have read or digest condensed books. You remember that? Yeah, those are great because the novel would be that thick and Reader's Digest would condense it. And um, anyway, so I'm gonna condense this thing. Richard Gans grew up as an Orthodox Jew. He said, in my youth, I spent every afternoon studying the Hebrew scriptures five days a week, and on Friday and Saturday, I worshiped. He was in the synagogue basically every day of his life. When he was 12, his father died. And he was stunned, and he was shocked, and he was angry at God. And for the next 12 years, he wanted nothing to do with God. And he ran away from God. And then then as he was going through his teen years, he decided this. He didn't believe there was a God. He, doesn't believe, he didn't believe that God cared about him because if God had cared about him, he wouldn't have taken his father. He needed his father. He loved his father. How could a good, loving God take his father from him at the age of 12? So he got angry and bitter at God. Would have nothing to do with God for the next 12 years. Uh, went to college, was a brilliant student. Decided he was going to study psychology. Decided he was going to get into medicine. Decided he was going to get into psychotherapy, be a psychiatrist. Uh, Guy went to college, number one in this class, went to med school, um, number one in this class, believed in psychotherapy. He's coming to the end of his residency. He's coming to the end of his residency. He's in his last year of postdoctoral studies. He says, the realization hit me one day at a staff meeting that psychoanalysis, the area I thought provided the answer to life, was nonsense. Now, how many years has this guy been in school? He's probably close. He's 30, 31, 32. Devoted his life to this. Knew all the theories. Knew all the, how many patients had he worked with? This, this, this. this. I'm sitting in a staff meeting, and it hit me that psychoanalysis, the area that I thought provided the answer to life, was absolute nonsense. So he decided that he had no option except to go through with it 
and make a lot of money, even though he didn't believe in it. Because he loved things, and he wanted things, and he wanted to be affluent. So that's what he's going to do. He then was selected to a special program. There were 212 applicants. He was the one chosen. It was a real honor. So he and his wife decide to celebrate by taking a, a cut-rate budget trip to Europe. They get to Europe. They wind up in the wrong airport, in the wrong place. All of the things that were supposed to happen, their arrangements, their guide, their hotel, all of it. They're in the wrong airport, late at night. They have nowhere to go. They're stranded. And they're so desperate that his wife, who is also an atheist, in front of the airport does something she hadn't done since she was a child. She called out to God and said, God, help us. We have nowhere to go. They turn, and here comes, how do they describe this guy? They describe a man of average height, very pale, with long blonde hair and blue eyes, walking towards them, and she said, ask him for help. So he asked the guy, do you know where we could go to find a place to stay tonight? He goes, you go three blocks down here. There is a hostel. You can find it very easily. They'll have room. You tell them that Buck sent you. Buck. Tell them that Buck sent you. They'll make room for you. They went in there. They said, Buck sent us. They said, who's Buck? <laughs> we don't know any Buck. Well, but we need a place. Well, we have a place for you. And they stayed there for several weeks. And everyone who came through there, they would ask him, hey, do you know Buck? No one had ever heard of Buck. Even years later, they would write letters asking people, who was Buck? No one had ever heard of Buck. Okay. The Bible says that some have entertained angels unawares. And as you hear the rest of the story, it makes me think that maybe this was one of those instances. So they're there at this place. Their plans are completely up in the air. They're kind of stuck, and they're just touring this uh, Dutch city. And after, you know, they're there a short time, and someone said to them, you ought to go to Switzerland. And there were some beautiful people up on a mountainside, and the place is called Labrie. You ought to go visit them. And they say, okay, and here's how you get there. So they go to, they don't even know what the place is. Labrie is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer who has been called the apostle to the intellectuals. God put him over there in uh, the 50s and the 60s, and through a remarkable set of providences, these college kids from all over the world would come and um, talk to this man. Long hair, would wear knickers, a little goatee. Didn't look like the average evangelical in the 60s and 50s. But God had set them there with his wife through remarkable. And, and so he and his wife show up, and they were, they were welcomed, and they were given a room. Because you see, they were immediately welcomed because Francis Schaeffer and his wife, the way they set up their ministry is, uh, Lord, you bring here the people you want. If they come to the door, we'll take it that they're from you. The ones you don't want here, keep them away. So here comes this guy, this Jewish guy and his Jewish wife, and they don't know the first thing about anything. And suddenly they're welcomed and they're given a room with clean sheets and a clean bathroom and the hospitality. And they're just, well, you just stay and we have some studies and discussions. And so one night they're having a discussion. And a guy said, do you mind if I read something to you from the Bible? And he just started reading it, didn't tell him where it was from. And he begins to read Isaiah 53 which is the sec section about the coming Messiah, about the suffering Savior. He reads it, and then this young Jewish, brilliant psychotherapist who doesn't believe it and is not sure what's going to happen with his life said, well, I know you're going to say that's Jesus, but I've seen paintings of people that were around the cross when Jesus died, and that was written by somebody who was there. And then the man said, can I hand this to you? And he handed it to him, and it said Isaiah. And because of his background in the synagogue, he knew that was Old Testament and preceded Christ. And, what, and he said, my life changed in that minute because I knew that that was written before Jesus ever came. And I found out that he was the Son of God. 
And within days, he and his wife had both given their lives to Christ. He goes back to the preferred position in the psychiatric hospital. 212 applicants, he gets it. You guys still with me? They give him a patient that nobody else wants. I'll read it to you. When we returned to the States, I was given a patient at the medical center who hadn't spoken an intelligent word in four and a half years. My assignment was get a manual. Interesting name. The guy's name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. My assignment was get Emmanuel to speak four or five words coherently. He came into my group therapy session, sat down, and began to hyperventilate and writhe around. He said, I'm Jesus Christ. I pulled out a Gideon New Testament and read from the 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And I read, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the, son of the, the coming of the Son of Man be. Emmanuel was absolutely silent. And then he said, where did you read that? I threw the Bible to him and said in the Gospel of Matthew, why don't you read it? And for a month he was silent, and then he came into my office, and he said, Dr. Gans, I want to become a Christian. I took Emmanuel in my office, shared the good news of Christ with him, and with tears in his eyes, he received Christ. The next day, the director of my department called me into his office. Rich, I've been here 31 years, and I've just heard the craziest story I've ever heard. Emmanuel has been running around the ward telling everyone who will listen that he's saved. I interrupted at that point. How many words did it take him to say it? I was hoping they would realize what a great success it was, but they didn't. And then he proceeds to go on and he says, but we've got a problem here, Rich, because he's saying that he is saved and he believes in Jesus because of you. And we can't have this around here. You can't be doing this here. Yes, but the man has obviously been completely changed. That's beside the fact. You cannot say this here in this place. You can't say it anywhere professionally. And that was the end of him in psychotherapy. And then providentially, someone came along and gave him a book on biblical counseling written by Jay Adams. And the next thing you know, he's taking courses at Westminster Theological Seminary. And now he's a pastor in the Philadelphia area. Never saw it coming. The reason I, I, I love that. I, 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 and there were so many more details I didn't even give you. Is that not great? The guy's got all these degrees. He's sitting there in a staff meeting. He goes, you know what? I don't believe this crud. This is nonsense. But he was stuck. What else is he going to do? And then the Lord providentially begins to work. Into the, where, are the, where are the events that the Lord used to bring you? Huh? Broken marriage, maybe? Broken dreams? What was it? See, he's at work. You say, what does that have to do with Noah? I don't know. <laughs> but it's a good story, don't you think? No, it has something to do with Noah, and let me show you why. Let's go to Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, we'll pick up at verse 6. It says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, here we go. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. What does that mean? Well, you go back to Genesis 6. God told Noah, I'm going to judge the earth because all of mankind is so corrupt. I'm going to destroy the earth. And I'm going to send rain. What's rain? Because it had never rained before. The earth, there was no rain on the earth. There was a, there was a, a canopy over the earth. There was mist some kind of canopy that the earth was watered by. But there was no rain. 
He'd never seen rain. There had never been a flood. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So if you go back and you look at Hebrews, uh, uh, Genesis 6, you see the story, and God told him what was going to come. And God made it very clear to him that this was going to come. And so in faith, he believes what God told him. Even though he's never seen rain, even though he's never seen a flood, it's hard for him to even imagine. So he begins to build this ark, and the dimensions are very clear. And um, if you want to read a fascinating book sometime, read The Genesis Flood by Henry Morris. Because all the questions you have about, oh, the ark, ha, ha, you know, how could they have gotten all of that? Go read it. Just go read it. Uh, go look at the chart of the ark at Bible Logo Software on the web. Go look at it. They'll show you how over 150,000 animals the size of sheep could have been layered in there in three different decks. You're talking a boat not that much smaller than modern-day cruise lines. Smaller, but not that much smaller. The dimensions, all that. Uh, the ark has been sighted in the glacier at Ararat. You can read about that throughout history. Uh, as one of my professors said, don't get too excited if they find the ark. Because let me tell you something. If they find the ark with Noah's initials on the steering wheel, they're not going to believe it. <laughs> they're not going to submit. To the, they'd have to glorify God. They're not going to do it. They've already got arguments against it. So, 120 years, he's building that ark. Now, this guy, hey, hey guys, let's, let's pull ourselves in here. This either really happened or it didn't. Okay? I have a young family member, extended family, who last time our whole family was together, I found out she's going to a church and the pastor got up and said the Genesis flood never occurred. Well, she's in the wrong church. Because when you look at Genesis, in fact, let's go to Genesis 6. Oh, you don't really believe in the flood, do you? You know, I can remember as a kid in Cub Scouts, in Bakersfield, California, San Joaquin Valley, 150 miles from the Pacific Ocean. I remember the first time we went to Shark's Tooth Mountain. And uh, everybody took a spade and took some wire mesh. And we went out there and, oh, I don't know, four or five o'clock at night, and uh, we started digging. And I mean, it wasn't three minutes before you dig and you throw that dirt in there and you go like this. And there was a shark too. And all the guys were finding them. That, that, that big hill was just full of shark's teeth. Now how'd that happen? Well, at night they'd bring a truck in full of shark's teeth and dump them in <laughs> and throw them in. That's not what they did. Uh, in Genesis, I want to show you something. Genesis chapter 6. Verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, cover it inside with pitch. Look at verse 17. Behold, I am, behold, I, even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth. Watch this, to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. Some say, well, if there was a flood, it was local. This says to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. It's a universal flood. 
Now, you can send your kids to certain Christian schools and they're going to tell them it didn't occur. So you make sure the Christian school that you send them to believes the Word of God. Okay? So for 120 years, he's building this thing. Now, you stop and think about this. You think this guy got any ridicule? You think this guy got any uh, jokes made about him? You think this guy... Um, well, you, you get it. I, I want to show you two things that we learned from Noah that you will probably encounter in your life as you walk by faith and following the Lord. Here's the first one. Noah had to learn to stand alone as he walked by faith. There's nothing harder than having to stand alone. Uh, to, you know what? We all want to be liked. We all want to be popular. We all want to get along. We, uh, we want our peers to like us. Um, when we're raising kids, we're very mindful that as they're growing up, and especially they get into adolescence, uh, they get into the middle school years, they get into high school, peer pressure is huge, huge. It's huge. It is. <laughs> I, I want to tell you guys, we live in an evil world. And the pressure, even among Christian kids, um, of sexting, and kids in Christian schools and in solid Christian churches. I've just become aware of you know, a situation and kids from solid homes got found out because one kid as a punishment had a cell phone taken away. And three hours later a text comes through that was astonishing. And then they figured it out and they got all the parents together and which needed to happen. All Christian kids, Christian school, Christian, 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 Christian camps. Okay? We're living uh, in 59, 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we are he said, in 1959, we are living in days of exceptional evil. He wouldn't believe where we are today. And it was evil back then. We, we all want to be like, we all want our peers to like us. And as you have kids that get older and older, grandkids and kids in the middle school, you know this, you remember when you were a kid, the whole thing is you want your peers, you want to be accepted by your peers, and peer pressure is huge. Have you noticed that peer pressure doesn't go away as you go through life? Hey, we all want to be popular in high school, but you know what? But here's the problem. And this is why we teach our kids, because most kids, well, we, we all want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We don't want to be outcast. And there's tremendous pressure to go along. You've got to train a kid to stand alone. And I'll tell you how you train them. You train them by you doing it. And they're watching your example. Have they ever seen you stand alone on something? Stand for the Lord, stand for a conviction, stand for a principle that cost you something. It's the most powerful way to teach. Have you noticed peer pressure doesn't go away when you get out of high school? Peer pressure doesn't go away when you get out of your 20s or 30s, 40s. You know, in high school, most guys, most, most, most of my friends in high school were going the wrong way, down the wrong road. But that didn't quit in high school. In your world, most guys that you work with are on the wrong road, going the wrong direction, and they want you to come with them. And if you don't, you're going to pay the price. It's hard to stand alone. If, 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 and you don't go to work to preach. You go to work to work. But if you're there a while, it's going to, they're going to figure out pretty, pretty soon where your allegiances are. If you know the Lord, that's going to, that's going to come out eventually. And for a lot of guys, the pressure is just too great. And they begin to cave. 
And the pressure is so great that they begin to say things at work you'd never say anywhere else. You see, because, because you want to be accepted. You don't need the applause of men. You want to please the Lord. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying this is incredibly hard. But at some point in our walk of faith, we're going to have to learn to stand alone. To stand alone. You've got a principle. There's a principle of conviction, and they want you to compromise. What are you going to do? Well, you know, I, man, you know, this, this might cost, it might cost me my job. It costs this guy his job. He goes into that hospital, and there's a guy that doesn't speak, hasn't spoken for four or five years, and he begins to, to teach Scripture because, let, let me tell you something, there is a demonic world out there. And just as the garrison demoniac was tormented, we have people that are tormented. And you better take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God in some situations. Now, you're not there to preach, but if, it's, if, if you've got a spiritual battle and someone that's locked up, this guy did the right thing. But you better be prepared to take the consequences. And what were the consequences? You're done. You're out of here. Oh, were they going to give him a reference? Not him. His career was over. Does that mean God's plan for your life is over? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Hey, they can't thwart that. In fact, God uses strange things. God uses disappointments and God uses defeats and God uses huge setbacks to get you where you need to be. Your, your life, your, your life uh, destiny is not in their hands, it's in his hands. Right? I mean, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. We got rid of that kid. They were just, <laughs> and what was God doing? They sold him, oh, he's going into Egypt. We'll never see him. God sent him to Egypt. You say, well, how does that work? I don't know. But it tells me that your life, is, your life and your destiny is not under the control of men. It's under the control of God who controls all men. Right? It's hard to stand alone. It's, it's brutally difficult to stand alone. The prophet Jeremiah had to stand alone. You know, we all want to be successful, and we want things to go our way. In the introduction to Jeremiah's book in the uh, English Standard Version Study Bible, here's what it says. Jeremiah had a difficult life, just like Noah. Just like Noah had a difficult life. So can I tell you, can I say this? Some of you guys have a difficult life. And you know what? The hand of God's all over you. God takes his men through difficulty. He takes his men through hardship. Jeremiah had a difficult life. His messages of repentance delivered at the temple were not well received. His hometown, his hometown plotted against him, and he endured much persecution in the pursuit of his ministry. At God's command, he never married, which is the exception. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, do I not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the rest of the apostles? The idea in the Roman Catholic Church that uh, priests are not to be married is not a biblical idea. All the apostles were married except Paul. Elders, first, what is it, 1 Timothy 3? To be the husband of one wife, a one-woman kind of man. It's expected. God expects his men to be married. Why? Men don't get married, you don't have kids. Boy, follow that logic. And one of the, one of the creation mandates is to be fruitful and do what? Multiply. Nobody gets married, we're not multiplying, you're not going to have the next generation coming up. So have kids. Go ahead, go home, have kids. Be good for you, you'll feel better. He was a faithful preacher, get this. Jeremiah was a faithful preacher, but apparently he only had two converts his whole life. His scribe named Baruch, Jeremiah 32, verse 12, and Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch who had served the king in Jeremiah 38, 7. These are the only two mentioned in the entire book who responded favorably to Jeremiah's preaching. 
God told Jeremiah up front, you will not be successful, but you will be used. You will be used. And he walked by faith. You say, how, do, how, do, how, does, that, how does that work when you've got to stand alone? Well, go back to Hebrews 11. Let me, let me show you something. Verse 32, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You go, what? Watch this. Watch the next line. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Some of these guys lost their lives without seeing the promise. Let me ask you something. What happens when you die if you know Christ? That's the greatest day of your life. They died not receiving the promise. But what happened the moment they died? They saw Christ. What trumps that? To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Years ago at a conference, we, uh, we had a question-answer time at some point, and a guy sitting right over here, and we had someone running around with a Phil Donahue mic, you know, so everyone could hear him. And uh, he got on the mic, and the guy obviously was broken. He had tears, and he said, I have a question. I do not understand why God has been so harsh with me. Last year, both of my sisters, this guy was probably 40-ish, 50-ish, both of my older sisters, who I have loved all my life, both got cancer. We prayed for their healing. And right around Christmas time, both of my sisters died. That month, hardest Christmas I've ever had, my family's ever had. I do not understand why God would do that. We prayed for their healing. And I said, can I ask you a question, sir? And I, and I want to say this gently, but I, but I want to say it to you. Did your sisters know Christ? He said, absolutely. And you're wondering why they weren't healed. He said, yes. I said, they were healed. Weren't they? He said, well, I didn't mean for them to be healed like that. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sure you didn't. But they're healed and they have no pain. They have no pain. And God had a plan for their life before they were ever conceived. And they're in the presence of Christ. And may I say this to you? You want them back, but they wouldn't want to come back. And if you know Christ, one day you'll go to be with them. And that's your hope. I tried to say it as kindly as I could, but this man had it all reversed. I don't understand why God didn't heal. He did heal, just not the way you ask him to do it. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not. Which leads me to the second point, which I got to with 30 seconds left on the clock. <laughs> Not only did Noah have to stand alone as he walked by faith, but Noah had to wait on God as he walked by faith. We have to be very, very careful 
as we walk through life with the Lord that we don't come up with our own time schedules and set them on the Lord. He is God. We are not. Do we pray? Yes, we pray. But be careful of putting a time component on your prayers. I've, I've heard guys do this, you know. Well, Lord, I'm in this situation, and I just claim by faith that by next May, by next May, I'll be delivered. I'll be set free by next May. And what is this, October? By next May, Lord, I pray. And so you walk around, and you know, for a month. By next May, oh, Lord, I pray by the 1st of May, by the 1st of May, okay. Then you get the 1st of May, and guess what? And then you, and you, and you wake up, and it's May 2nd, and you're still in it. Well, God has let me down. God didn't let you down. Well, I pray it was May 1. Who said it was May 1? Did the Lord say May 1? You said it was May 1. Now, here you've got to be real careful. You've got to really look at the Word of God. Well, I, I, I spoke that into existence. You don't speak anything into existence. God speaks things in existence. We bow to the Word of God. We are not God. We are sons of God. But He is God. My, my life is in your hands. You let God work out the timing. How, how, how presumptuous for us to tell God how He ought to run our lives and on what time schedule? How have you done in your life running your life on your time schedule? Well, I haven't done real well. So who am I to tell God the timing of my life? What do I know? Not much, apparently. Because I can show you some major mistakes. I can show you some... I don't know the timing of God, and you don't either. Why is it when you read through the Psalms, you always come across the word, wait, wait, wait. You say, I've been waiting, I've been waiting. Well, some old wise sage said, you may be waiting, but know this, God's delays are not God's denials. If it's delayed, it's worth waiting for. Trust him for his timing. He knows what he's doing. You know, in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. Now we're in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand. When it says we are his workmanship, it is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our word poem. Poem. You say, wait a minute. So that says we are God's workmanship. You're saying that, that that means we're God's poem? Well, that's what it says. And maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought poems were supposed to rhyme. Well, they are. Well, you know, Steve, as I'm sitting here tonight, let me tell you this. In my life, I may be God's poema, but there's no rhyme in my life. In fact, I look at my life and where I am tonight, there's no rhyme and there's no reason to what's going on in my life. And that's probably true. Let me ask you a question, if that's how you're feeling. Does every word in a poem rhyme? The answer to that is no. You don't get a rhyme until you get to the end of the line. Can I tell you what's great about God? I don't care how long you've been delayed. If what you're praying is according to his will and based on a promise from his word, he will come through, either in this life or the moment you leave this life. But he will come through. And there are times when we are frustrated because we've been waiting. The longer we wait, the more we lose hope. That's why he said in Psalm 130, in your word do I hope. If you're having to wait, you have to stay in the word. You don't close your Bible, you open your Bible and you live off of the promises. Some of you guys, here's what I would say. Some of you guys, as you are here tonight, and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and you're saying there's no rhyme. You know what? That's because you're in the middle of the line. But, but you could be two or three words away from a rhyme and not even know it. Let God bring the rhyme. 
Let God handle the timing. My times are in your hand. He knows what... God's timing is impeccable. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's all about time. He owns time, and he owns your life. So what are we going to do until the answer comes? We're going to walk by faith, trusting in his word. And I'll tell you this, he'll sustain you until you get to the rhyme. That's what he does. It's what he did with Noah. It's what he does with you and you and you and me and this guy who was going to be a psychotherapist and is now a pastor. It's in his hands. And you live and then you die. And if you know Christ, you're promoted. It's the greatest thing in the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the way... For the, for the amazing way you work in our lives. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. We look back over our lives. Every guy in this room who knows you has to look back over his life and marvel. Just marvel. We adore your providence. We adore that you're in the details. We, we, <laughs> sometimes we just laugh out loud as we have looked back over situations where we were finished and done, and you came through at the very last second in a way we could have and never have imagined. And you've made a way. Well, if you've done it before, why would you not do it again? We have guys in situations and they're under unbelievable pressure. If they had a million years, they couldn't figure out who you're going to answer. Because you were so infinitely creative. But you'll answer. We trust in that. We're walking by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.